I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 4 this morning. Um, it's, it's a privilege this morning to be able to um, introduce a new sermon series that we're starting today. And it will be going on for the next five weeks called What Keeps You Up at Night? And I know that many of us have various things that bring us restless evenings and sometimes causes sleepless nights. And I want to talk about some of those things. And, and as we start thinking about the things that keep us up at night, I want to ask you that. And you certainly don't have to answer out loud, but think to yourself, what are the things that cause me to stay awake at night? What are the things that I give my head to and my heart to that I worry about, that bring me anxiety, that bring me fear, that cause me to lose sleep? And I know for me, over the season of my life, I'm 44 years old. To some of you, that's still very young, but I feel like I've, you know, I've obviously lived four decades. And, and um, I think about how the things have changed over the years that keep me up at night. You know, when I was a young boy, probably six or seven years old, I remember thinking and knowing in my mind, I just knew that the monster under my bed was real. Yeah, any, anybody remember that when you were really young? There was a monster under your bed that wanted to eat you and it wanted to consume you. Or maybe that monster that was in the closet on the other side of the bedroom. And I remember as a young child thinking to myself, in my, in, in my brain, this made sense. As long as my feet aren't over the edge of the bed. As long as my hands aren't hanging over the side and as long as my covers are tucked underneath of me and they're, you know, I'm wrapped up like a burrito, that monster can't touch me. And I remember thinking to myself, there there were nights when I was very young where I'm like, I can't sleep because I know this monster is going to get me in the middle of my sleep. And then as I got a little bit older and, you know, got into my early teen years, the thing that kept me up at night And this might sound a little bit weird, but the thing that kept me up at night was the idea of the rapture. I was really worried about Jesus coming back again. And it wasn't because I wasn't a Christ follower, because I had a relationship with Jesus. I surrendered my life to Christ when I was 10 years old. I invited him to be the Lord of my life. And so I knew that my relationship was was healthy with God and it was growing. But I also, um, and I also knew that my eternity was secure, but I also knew this. I had my whole life in front of me and there were so many things that I wanted to be able to experience and I was afraid that Jesus might come back before I got my driver's license or that he might come back before I graduated from high school or that he might come back before I got married and got to enjoy the pleasures of marriage and or that he might come back before I had children or had a career and I remember having sleepless nights worried about the unfulfilled desires in my life. I get into my early 20s, and many of you will remember this as well. The thing that brought me sleepless nights, it wasn't really the things, it was more the who's, right? Those children, those babies in the house, over the course of about 10 years, it seemed like we always had a baby in the house between three different children that my wife and I had. There was always a baby crying at night. And you remember those nights very well. And as you think back on them, you probably miss them. But you remember in that moment, you were just like, you hated the fact that you couldn't sleep at night. And so I remember many evenings where one of the girls, my youngest daughter, Finley, is sitting in the second row right here. I remember many nights when she would be crying at night and I would lay in bed and fake like I didn't hear it. Any of you husbands ever do that? 
I mean, let's be honest, raise your hands. You ever fake it? Maybe I'm the only one that has an evil tendency in me. But I used to fake like I didn't hear it. And Becky would wake up the next morning. She'd be like, did you hear Finley? I'm like, no, didn't hear it at all. Because all I wanted to do was get sleep. But I just remember how long those, month, those weeks and those months felt like, are we ever going to get a full night of sleep again? You know, and so I, I think about those things. And now I'm in my 40s. And I have to work. Like, the seasons have changed. My girls are all obviously old enough to sleep through the night. But the seasons have changed. And now I'm at this point where I have to work to keep the weight off. Like, I have to work to stay in shape. And so when I moved back here to Ohio from Colorado, um, I basically just allowed myself to enjoy all the pleasures of North Central Ohio when it came to restaurants and food. And so I enjoyed every donut shop that there was in this area. I enjoyed every pizza joint that there was in this area and all of the great local restaurants. And, and you guys may not believe this, but when I moved here and over the course of like two and a half years, I gained 35 pounds. Um, and I blame it all on Mansfield and Ashland and all the great donuts and all the great pizza. But I, got, I allowed myself to get lazy. And so what I did about a month and a half ago is I started this mental discipline and toughness and health challenge. It's called 75 Hard. And I'm doing this challenge for 75 days. And every day I'm forced to drink a gallon of water every day. And so most days I'll get a half a gallon of water down. I'll drink it by noon. And, you know, then you kind of coast through the rest of the day. But there are several days, including last night, there are several days where it comes up on nine or 10 o'clock and I still have like 40 ounces of water to drink. And you can imagine me drinking 40 ounces of water right before I go to bed. The things that keep me up at night now are a little bit different than 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But, you know, the fact is, you guys, is that we're not, we're not here to talk about the things that keep us up at night, like how many times we have to go to the bathroom. We all experience that. What I'm talking about is the things that keep us up at night that, man, the things that we give our, our, our minds to and our hearts to that beat us up and keep us up. And no matter what stage of life you are in, whether you're in your 20s or whether you're in your 80s or anywhere in between, we all have those things that, that we worry about that keep us up at night. And so I want to ask you, as I shared all of those examples, what are the metaphorical monsters in your life that cause you to be sleepless, that you worry will consume you? What are the unfulfilled desires that you still wish to endeavor into that you worry you may never get to fulfill and you lose sleep at night? You know, what are the things that you've been avoiding, the problems or the scenarios or the circumstances that you've been avoiding, just hoping that they might go away? Just hoping that when you wake up in the morning that it may no longer be a problem, but because you keep avoiding it, it continues to cause you sleepless nights. Every one of us have these things, and for many of us, I believe this to be the case. The thing that keeps us up at night is oftentimes unfulfilled longings that God places in our hearts and wants us to live a life of significance, but we feel like we haven't fulfilled those longings. You know, when I was in my late 20s, um, we were living, my wife and I, my family, we were living in Boise, Idaho, and I was in between ministries. I had worked as a youth pastor for about seven years in one church, and I just needed kind of a, a restart. I needed a refresher. And so I took, I took a secular job. I worked at a factory in Boise called Micron Technologies. 
And it was definitely a factory job. And I have to tell you, I absolutely hated it. I hated everything about that job, but it paid the bills. And it provided insurance because my wife was pregnant with our second daughter. And so we really needed good insurance. And so every day, day in and day out, I would go in, I would punch a clock, I would put in my work, and I would punch out. Every day, this is what I did. And if you, did it, as you recall, back to like the late 2000s, maybe 2006, 2007, 2008, did anybody in here own a Motorola Razor phone? You remember those phones? Well, if, you, if anybody had one of those phones, there's a good chance that I made one of the imaging chips that was in the camera in that phone. And so that was my job. I made imaging chips for cars that had cameras in them, for cell phones, for computers, for toys, all of these different things. And it was a completely, to me, meaningless job. And every day I would punch in, put in my work, punch out, and it just sucked the life and the joy right out of me. And I did that for three long years. And my wife and I were like ships passing in the night. She would come home from work and I would basically drop the girls off to her and I would head off to work. It kept me up metaphorically and physically every night because I worked from 6.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. And my wife and I, all we did was cross paths for three years. And it was awful. And I was living a quiet life of desperation because I knew that God had called me to more. You know, Henry, the poet Henry David Thoreau, he once wrote this. He once said, the mass of men lead quiet lives of desperation. Maybe you've heard that quote before. There are many people that are living in darkness, that are wrestling with the darkness in their life because they know that they have been created and they have been made for more and they long for more, but they don't know how to live it out. And they wonder to themselves, and maybe you've thought this to yourself at some point in time in your life, is this all that there is? Like, isn't there more to life than just going to work and making a paycheck and paying bills and raising kids, which is no small endeavor? It's very important. But isn't there more to life than working and taxes and death? Man, I know that many of us, we wonder, is my life going to count for something? And chances are you've had those similar thoughts. You've, you've been here, you might be here right now, and you're wrestling with that thought. At this stage in my life, whatever that is, am I still able to contribute? Am I still able to leave a legacy? Can I still find that longing that maybe God once placed in me, but has gone dormant, or I've forgotten about, or I've just walked away from? And there might be many of you in here that still have a fire in your bones, and you know God wants to use you, you just don't know where and you don't know how. Well, today I want to talk to you about how to live a life of longing. Because for many of us, the more we follow Jesus and the more we listen to this great commission, I think the more we are in tune with how God wants to use us. And when we don't feel like we're being used, we long for more. And so I want to talk about how we live a life of longing from 1 Chronicles chapter 4. And and chances are, you've heard of the character that we're going to study this morning. He is uh, wrapped up in the first uh, six chapters of First Chronicles, and he's kind of buried in the midst of all of these different people. You've read through the Old Testament, most likely. You get to First Chronicles, and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, the only thing worse than this is either Numbers or Leviticus. You know, and it's so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then they begat so-and-so, and then they begat so-and-so. And you read this 600 times, and by the time you get to, you know, number 100, you're like, so-and-so begat, and then I forget what I've been reading, you know? And um, th- there's this list of 
uh, the genealogy of Israel. And it gets to the point where this character that we're going to look at this morning, we get all the way into chapter 4, and then it's almost like the writer of Chronicles pauses and says, I want to highlight this one individual. And he's going to get two verses, and his name is Jabez. And there's a good chance that if you've been around church, if you've been a Christian for a very long time, you either know the story of Jabez, or maybe back in the early 2000s, you read a little book called The Prayer of Jabez, and so you kind of heard his story. Well, I want to break that down a little bit, and I want to show you how he lived a life of longing. And so here's Jabez, 4,000 years later, as you look at First Chronicles 1 through 6, all these chapters, most of these people will never be remembered, even though they're written down in scripture. Most of them are just kind of a name on a page. But then you come to Jabez and we remember him 4,000 years later because he dared to live for more. He dared to live a life of longing. And so I want to give you this morning, as we read First Chronicles chapter 4, we're going to read verses 9 and 10. I want to give you three points or three key points to living a life of longing. And so as we're in our Bibles in First Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles 4, I want to read 9 and 10. It says this, And Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. This is a man who left a legacy because he dared to ask for more. He dared to live for more and he longed for God. And I want to talk about what it looks like to live a life of longing based on what we can pull out of the story of Jabez. And so here's the first key if you're taking notes. Jabez longed for a life of significance. He longed for more than simple existence. He wanted a life of significance. And so here's Jabez. He wants more than fine. He wants more than just to get through his days. He wants more than just an okay life. He longs for more. And Pastor Rick Warren, who has pastored Saddleback Church in Southern California for about the last 30 years or so, he once said in a sermon, most people fall into one of three levels, uh, I should say one of three life level categories. The first level is this, survival. The second level is um, success. And the third level is significance. And you probably know all of these levels and maybe you've lived in a couple of these different life levels in your own life. And so the first level is the survival level. My guess is, is that for most of you, you don't live in this place but most of the developing world and certainly third world countries, most of them live in this survival life level where all they're trying to do is make their next dime. They're trying to make their next dollar. They're trying to find that clean source of water. They're trying to fill their bellies with that next meal. And that's all they can think about. They are simply trying to stay alive. But again, my guess is, is that none of you woke up this morning wondering, am I going to have enough money to get through today? Am Am I going to be able to eat lunch or dinner? You probably don't live that, in that place. 
But the next level is where most people live, certainly in America, and it's the success level. Because this is the level where we see kind of the American dream lived out. And we see people that are living for the four P words, power, prestige. Um, They live for uh, promotion, they live for popularity, and they live for, for pleasure. My guess is, is that maybe some of you are still in that place where you're living for success and that's the life level that you're at, but maybe even there's a chance that you have tasted success. You've had promotion, you've had power, you've had money and all these things and you found that they still leave you lacking and they still leave you wanting. So maybe even that doesn't keep you up at night. But then we get to the significance level. This life level where you know you want your life to count for something. You know you want to contribute more to this world than just, um, you know, a piece of property that you owned or a home that you built or a job that you fulfilled. You want to know that your life has added up to something that is worthy of a legacy worth remembering. And that's what Jabez longed for. So I want to go back to to 1 Chronicles 4, and let's read the first part of verse 10 again as we look deeper into his story and draw more application out of it. So Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border or enlarge my territory. Now, as Americans, we hear this and we probably think to ourselves, well, this guy is just trying to acquire and accumulate more. He just wants more money. He wants to advance himself. He wants to fulfill his own selfish desires and pleasures. And we think that that's all about, because that's how many of us work. If I take that job promotion, then I'll make that much more money. And if I make that much more money, I can get that pool or that new car, or I can make that trip, or I can spoil my grandkids a little bit more. We want to accumulate so we can do and have more. But I would tell you that through Jewish eyes, as they would read this, as Jews would read this Old Testament, what it says is that Jabez was asking for more territory because property and territory brought position. And position brought responsibility. And responsibility brought influence. And so Jabez is, in effect, he's asking for influence. He's not asking this for this because he wants to build up his own kingdom. He's asking for influence in order that he might impact as many people as possible for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God. And so here's Jabez. He's not praying a selfish prayer for gain. He's not praying for his own ambitions. He's praying for God to expand his borders in order that he might make a greater impact. That's what he longed for. My father-in-law, his name was Lou. Lou Hill was a modern-day Jabez in, in my mind. He was a wonderful man who followed the Lord, and for 30 years he pastored and planted churches in Texas and then up in Idaho. And when most normal men at his age would be kind of putting it on cruise control, putting life on cruise control, my father-in-law desired more. He longed for more. He wanted to leave a legacy. And so when most men would be kind of like looking toward retirement, my father-in-law dared to pray a Jabez prayer. He dared to ask God for more because he wanted more than existence. He wanted more than mere survival. And so he surrendered his life to the mission field, to the people of Macedonia and serving pastors in Macedonia. And specifically as those pastors serve the unreached people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So at 64 years old, 
Uh, my father-in-law was reinventing himself because he wanted to live a life that mattered. He dared to ask God for more. And you know, none of this was about building his own kingdom. None of this was about prosperity gospel. None of this was about name it and claim it. And this is what I want for my own selfish ambition. In fact, there were times where I'm like, why is this guy pivoting now when he could be retired in a couple years? This was not about him. This was about God's kingdom. And the tragic thing is that Lou never made it to Macedonia. Um, shortly after he had surrendered to the mission field, he was raising, he was raising money in order to be able to be this missionary. Shortly after that, he was stricken with cancer that was terminal. And, um, he, uh, he fought for about a year and toward the end of his life, he was in the hospital and he couldn't get out of bed and he, he could still talk and he could still respond. And, and he was heavily medicated it was really difficult to watch. It was really difficult to see. And you know how it is when people are heavily medicated or they're sedated. A lot of times their true self comes out. And sometimes that looks ugly for some people. Like sometimes anger and bitterness and wrath come out. But my father-in-law revealed his true self. And with just weeks left to live, he was heavily medicated and his heart, the things that his heart beat for came out of his mouth. And at one point, he literally had like six or seven weeks left. And we didn't know at that time how long he had. But he came to me. He said, Chris, we have to go get the church's sound system. We have to get a microphone. And we have to invite everybody that we can into this hospital room because more people need to hear about Jesus. My father-in-law desired more. At the end of his life, he was not concerned with survival. He was concerned with salvation. The salvation of those who were far from Jesus. He longed for more, even toward the end of his life. So let me ask this question as we make a little bit of application, we turn it back to you. Do, have you ever longed to live a life like that? Do you have any kind of longing for your life to matter to someone else outside of maybe you, your wife or your husband or your kids or your grandkids? And don't get me wrong, that's a wonderful legacy to raise up kids and grandkids in the faith but beyond that, do you have a, a longing to make an impact on this world for the gospel of Christ? Is there going to be anybody toward the end of your years or maybe even after you're gone? Is, any gonna, is anybody going to remember you because you made a significant spiritual impact in their life? Do you long for that? You know, I went to lunch with uh, my friend Mark Brunn. I don't know that Mark knows I'm going to share this story, but I went, I went to lunch a couple of weeks ago with Mark, and Mark has become a friend of mine, and, and we just wanted to get to know each other, so we sat down over lunch, and we talked about life, and we talked about kids, we talked about his new grandbaby that was born, and we talked about faith, and we talked about our faith journeys, and all of these things, and it was just really edifying. It was a really good time that I enjoyed with him, and I asked Mark a little bit about how he came to Christ, and the people that like made an impact on him, and he told me his faith story, and what I love about it is as he shared his testimony with me, there was one individual, one couple in particular, that he couldn't leave out of his story. And you know his name. His name is Bob Roth. And Bob is one of my favorite people. He's shaking his head right now because I know he's a humble hero and he doesn't want people to make a big deal out of him. But Mark told me, he goes, Chris, I'm here today 
because Bob invested and his wife, Judy, invested in my life some 40 years ago or even more. When I was a teenager, Mark said, he said, Bob would open his home to teenagers and he would just welcome us in and he would let us ask questions and he would hang out with us and they would feed us and he just let us be real. And then in my early adult years, he was still accessible and available to us. I am here today and I couldn't be here today if it weren't for people like Bob. And I love hearing that because you know what that tells me? That Bob is living for more than just longevity. He's living for a life of longing and he's investing in other people. And I know he's humbled by all that and he doesn't want a bunch of people looking at him and celebrating him. But I feel strongly that people like Bob need to be celebrated. In fact, I had dinner with Bob just last night here uh, with one of our community groups. And Bob was asking me if he could go out and live missionally um, by going into assisted living facilities and leading groups to uh, sing hymns and sing songs to people that are in assisted living facilities. Here's Bob, you know, like up there in years, and he still wants to make a difference. He still wants to invest. And I love that. And I wonder how many of us live for a life of longing like Bob and how many of us are just living for longevity. Man, I love that testimony. And, and uh, the question might be for you is, how do I find that life of longing? How do I discover it? Maybe I found it a long time ago, but I've lost it. Like I've lost my purpose. Or maybe you're here and you're like, man, I've been walking through all of these decades and I don't know that I've ever lived out God's purpose or God's longing in my life. Well, I would tell you one of the things that I always like to share with people when I talk about longing and I talk about like giftedness and living out God's purpose is I talk about three concentric circles and three A words. First of all, affinity. What are the things that you have an affinity for? You're just like, you love it. You think about it. You breathe it. When you wake up in the morning, you have such an affinity for this thing or this um, idea that it just gets you out of bed in the morning. And, and you've given your heart to it and you, and you just think about it all the time and you consume yourself with it. What are your affinities? And then on the other side of that, what are your abilities? Maybe you've got an ability that you have developed over years. Maybe it's due to a hobby. Maybe it's due to a job or just like you're forced out of like necessity. You have to learn this skill. Or maybe you were born with a skill or a talent or an ability and you don't know why God gave it to you. He just did. So you've got affinities and you've got abilities. And then the third concentric circle is affirmations. What are the things that other believers in your life tell you and they see in you? When they speak into your life and they say, I see that you have a heart for lost people. Or I see that you are really good at um, hospitality. Or I see that you are really good at helping behind the scenes. What are the affirmations that you hear from other believers? And so when these abilities and these affinities and these affirmations all collide, like right there in the center of that, is what we call your sweet spot. And that's really your spiritual gifts. And many people never live a life of longing because they've never discovered how God has uniquely gifted them um, to, to make an impact in the world. And so I would encourage you, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, that maybe you just take a simple assessment that you can find online. I could print one out for you and you could take an assessment that might start pointing you in the direction of how God has uniquely wired you to make an impact. And so here's Jabez, as we circle all the way back to his story, 
Jabez didn't talk about his affinities and he didn't talk about his abilities and his, and his affirmations, but we know that he wanted more than existence. He wanted significance. And I want you to know that when you live your life in the power of the Holy Spirit and you live out his giftings that he has given you, whether it's hospitality, whether it's mercy, whether it's teaching, whether it's administration, whether it's like leading or pastoring or whether it's, you know, exhortation. I mean, there's all kinds of these gifts. When you live those out and leverage those in your life, that means God is going to use you to a greater extent than you can ever be used on your own. Jabez wanted a life of significance. Do you want a life of significance? That's the first key. The second key is this, that we pull from Jabez's story. Jabez was willing to overcome whatever obstacle stood in the way of his life of longing. He was willing to overcome whatever obstacle stood in his way. And Jabez kind of dug deep, so to speak. And he, he went deep with God and he dared to ask him for more. And Jabez knew he had a reputation. I mean, think about his very name. Look at 1 Chronicles 4, 9 again. It says this, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers and his mother called his name Jabez saying, because I bore him in pain. Now listen, I'm quite sure when I was a young child, I was a pain in my parents' neck. And I'm sure you remember being a pain in your parents' neck when you were little children as well, maybe even into your teenage years. I know I was a pain to my parents at times, and I certainly was inconvenient. And I know that at times I made their life difficult, but they never gave me a name that reflected that. You know, like they never named me, hey, pain in the neck, you know. Um, hey, pain in my rear end, like get over here. They never named me that, but here's Jabez. He lives with this constant reminder that he was a pain. He lived with a constant reminder that everywhere he went, pain followed him. And even his own mother, every time she addressed him, he was reminded that she went through horrific, a horrific experience giving birth to this child. He brought pain into the world. This was a serious obstacle for him. He was, uh, you know, at every point in his life, he had to deal with this. And this became an obstacle in his life because of this label that was placed upon him. But he refused to allow, the, to allow this label to deter him or limit his longing for effectiveness. The Bible says he was more honorable than his brothers. He was more honorable than those that were around him. In spite of how people viewed him, in spite of his surrounding circumstances, he decided he wanted to be more honorable and he overcame any obstacle in order to make an impact for the kingdom of God. You know, there's three kinds of people. There's three kinds of people in the world. I guess if you can categorize them very simply as it, as it um, you know, pertains to what we're talking about this morning, there, are, there is excusers, there are accusers, and there are choosers. Now think about that. Which one are you, as I think about these, as, as I mentioned these different types of people, excusers, accusers, and choosers. Now an excuser has an excuse for everything. They're the people that take no responsibility. They always have an excuse, man, I'm too old. 
or I just don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know that God can use me because I don't have enough scripture memorized. God couldn't use me because I have a disability or I have an ailment. God can't use me because my best days are behind me. God would never use me because the task is just too hard. The mountain is too high to climb. The giant is just too big. God wouldn't use me because, you know what, I tried this before and it didn't work out. These are excusers just like Moses. Think about Moses. God calls him to be a leader of his people, to take them out of Egypt, to be a deliverer. And Moses is like, God, is there anybody else? Because I am not qualified for this position. My resume is not nearly impressive enough to go before Pharaoh and convince him, God, please, I've got all of these reasons why you shouldn't use me. He was an excuser. But then you've got accusers as well. Accusers are the people that will point the finger at anybody else except for themselves. They want to accuse anybody and everybody for their plot and their lot in life. They're the blamer. They're always looking to put the, to put the pressure and the responsibility for their failures and their circumstances on someone else. Just like Adam did at the very beginning, right? God, the woman you gave me. It's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. Adam was an accuser. But then you've got the chooser. You've got the chooser that says, no matter what, I'm going to overcome these obstacles. Whatever that obstacle might be, whatever stands in between me and living my uh, God-given longing in life, I am going to fight through it and I am going to overcome those obstacles because God has given me this longing and I'm not going to make excuses and I'm not going to accuse others. I choose to be used by God. And I think about David when he stood against the giant, right? Everyone else had a reason why they shouldn't stand against that Goliath. But he chose to put himself into the battle and to fight. David was a chooser and God did something spectacular through him. So what is that giant in your life? What is that that sea that you want to walk on where you just have to step out? What is that, that river that needs to part and you just need to dip your toe in the water? You know, every one of us have something in our lives where we need to choose to, to stand into that, like to lean into that obstacle, just like Jabez did. He overcame that obstacle of that label in his life, that label of pain. And I'm telling you that if you will choose to um, basically put yourself into the fight, then God will do the rest. You just have to choose to make yourself available. And the third and last key is this. Jabez longed for God to protect him. He longed for God to protect him. Back at 1 Chronicles chapter 4, let's read verse 10, because this is his prayer. Jabez called upon the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me. And then keep close attention here. And that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. If you decide to live a life of longing, you will become a living target. There will be skeptics. 
that don't understand what your heart beats for and how you are living your life. There will be people that don't understand what God has called you to because you're going against the current of culture, because you don't fit in with the status quo, because you've challenged yourself for more. You will become a living target and people will label you. They will maybe hate you. They will mock you. They will call you names and they will just accuse you. And then there is an enemy called Satan who very much wants to seek, kill, and destroy you. And when you, put, when you put yourself into battle, when you decide you want to ask God for more and you long for more, that's when Satan's plan is threatened because he feels like it will be thwarted and so he's going to come after you. The enemy will take notice. You'll be on his hit list, so to speak. And so I want to encourage you this morning, don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Don't listen to the voices that don't understand what God has called you to do and what he's called you to sacrifice. What we need to do is to get to the place where we finally tune our ear into the voice of God and his voice is the only one that matters in our life because he's given us a longing and he's given us commission to go after it. But the scary thing is, is that for many of us, we're so busy trying to survive that we aren't even on anyone's radar. We're not even on the enemy's radar. Satan doesn't fear you. You're kind of like the, in Acts chapter 19, many of you have probably read the story of the seven sons of Sceva. You know, the priest, the priest named Sceva, he had seven sons, and they decided they wanted to enter into battle. They wanted to fight against this one demon, and they wanted to like team up and have a royal rumble with this demon. They wanted to enter into the spiritual battle, but what ended up happening was they weren't prepared. They weren't equipped. The demon didn't respect them. And he easily defeated them. And not only defeated them, but humiliated them in Acts chapter 19. And this is what the demon said. And this is such a challenge because I insert myself into this almost as if the demon were talking to me. He says this to the seven sons of Sceva. Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. But who are you? Like who are you that you come against me? And what we know is that they were easily defeated. Not only that, but they run out of the house completely naked and humiliated. The enemy wasn't even threatened. When you show up, when you decide you want to live out your longing for Jesus and you decide you want to live out God's longing for your life, the enemy will take notice. Does he fear you? Does, are you, is he threatened by you living out God's call in your life and God's mission for your life? Folks, what if we leverage these longings that God has put into us for the advancement of the kingdom of God? What if we, what if we decided we were going to go all in? Maybe the enemy would sit up and take notice and realize that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us and that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Man, that's where the power is when God gives us a longing and we say, God, I'm following you into whatever you call me and I will fight as long as you want me to fight because you're the one that gives me strength. And when we step out into the edge of longing, you find yourself in the enemy's crosshairs. So just understand when you enter into that battle, Jesus is sending us into a life of danger. Think about Matthew 10, 16, and we're almost done. Matthew 10, 16 says this. This is Jesus sending his followers out. This is Jesus now speaking to you and I. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
God did not call us to a life of ease. Jesus did not call us into a, a, a mission of comfort. He called us into danger. And so what, what he has commissioned us to do is not always safe. The will of God is not safe. It's not an insurance plan. It's a dangerous plan that puts us into harm's way. And we need to pray for God's protection Jabez knew that when he prayed for influence, because he wanted to live out that longing in his life, he knew that there were going to be obstacles, but he also knew that the enemy was going to come against him, and so he prayed for protection. So folks, my challenge to you this morning is, what is the longing that God has placed in your life? And are you living it out? Are you pursuing it? And I want to remind you, you've heard this phrase before, if you're not dead then God's not done. He is not done with you. And so lean into that. Live a life of significance. Live a life of longing. No matter how old or how young you are in this place, you can contribute to the advancement of the kingdom and the gospel of God. And I hope that as you think about the longings of your life, I hope that you wrestle with this. And certainly I don't want you to have sleepless nights, but I hope that you wrestle with this to the point where you're like, man, God, I really want to know what is your will for my life and how can I be obedient? Will that keep you up at night? Living a life of longing. Let's pray.